I'll open us this morning with words from the prophet Zechariah. It was not in our reading today, but you'll see the point shortly. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. And on that day, the Lord's feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. This prediction of the day of the Lord echoes these readings that we have in our lectionary reading today about the coming of the day of the Lord. I chose Zechariah today not to preach from it because um, I wanted to illustrate a point when um, Martin Luther wrote two commentaries on Zechariah. He tried to write the commentary twice. And when he came to chapter 14, he said this, here in this chapter, I give up, for I'm not sure what the prophet is talking about. And I am grateful for Luther's honesty around these apocalyptic visions. Christians can have a predilection to talk about trumpets and moons and days and to get fascinated with the symbolic about the coming of the Lord when Jesus reminds us that we do not know the day or the hour. There is a lesson about this prophetic day of the Lord that goes beneath the symbolism and that should take up action in our daily life. So I'll look at those in our readings today, three kinds of responses we should have to the day of the Lord. And the first is fear and faith. Amos warns us, doesn't he, today, woe to you who say, bring on the day of the Lord. For it is a day of darkness and not light, like one who runs from a lion and faces off with a bear or leans his hand on a wall to be bitten by a serpent. Those who find rest or seek light in the day of the Lord will find darkness and judgment. There is something we need to recall about the day of the Lord is that God, when he comes, will come to bring justice. He comes to put the world to rights. And the promise of the gospel of salvation, it is easy to forget the fact there must be a reckoning the world and those who have disobeyed, that the injustices of the world will be judged. And so the saints and the children of God ought to be those who are fearful. And it's common to think, no, that's an Old Testament thing. The New Testament doesn't tell us to be fearful. But Paul tells us more than once, therefore, he says to the Philippians, in my presence and now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The God of the Old Testament hasn't changed. It is the same one God. And he comes with justice. We ought to be reverent and respectful and humble before the one who comes. Our lives that we live in this world ought always to be a reflection of the infinite and the immense one who will come to be our king. And so that work of salvation is done with faith and with fear. The parable today of the two ten virgins and these two groups, the five wise and the five foolish. 
five who get into the feast with the bridegroom and the five who are put out is a reminder to keep our lamps trimmed, to be those people ready with light to greet the bridegroom. The Protestant faith, as you may know, protested this idea that we're saved by works, that somehow it will be a tally of the good things that we've done that will get us into the kingdom of God. And it is not, it is by grace, it is by faith that we enter into the kingdom of God. But the point of the lamps and the trimming and of the warning in Amos is that those people who have true faith and believe in God will exhibit their faith in their daily life. James says, show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. Do not the demons believe and tremble? Faith is an animated, vivid, living thing. It's not a ticket to the show that we present at the last day like the foolish virgins tried to do. Lord, Lord, let us in. I went to church. Those who have true faith and it is worked out within them, as Paul said, with fear and trembling, we offer back our talents, the investment of God in the way that we live our life. And so the day of the Lord is constantly a reminder for us to be ready to meet the bridegroom when he comes. To watch, for we do not know the day or the hour. I think often in this context of that rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to enter eternal life? And Jesus says to him, what? Keep the commandments. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. All these I have done, Jesus, from my youth up. I've got a tally. You see, it's not the tally of works that get us in. One thing you lack Go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and come and follow me. He has no deep abiding faith that will allow him to meet the Lord and regard his possessions as worth nothing with comparison to meeting the Lord. This parable, or even the metaphor of the wedding feast, remind us that that faith is one that once it sees the Lord, its life cannot help but be transformed to shape our lives around the one who's met us and saved us. And so the day of the Lord stands before us as one reminding us to trim our lamps and be ready. The day of the Lord, second, is one of comfort and hope. The end of this letter in Thessalonians, the end of the chapter today, Paul says to the Thessalonians, I don't want you to be uninformed. It's actually a phrase he uses several times. He wants us to grow up into Christ. I don't want you to be uninformed so that you grieve as others grieve who have no hope. This coming of the day of the Lord that he's going to go to, Paul says, I assure you that those who've fallen asleep, a metaphor for death, your family and your friends, those who've died in suffering, those who've died earlier, I Write to you not to grieve as those who grieve who have no hope. For we will meet them in the air. In other words, the day of the Lord says what we suffer and what we lose in this life is not like those others in this world. We do grieve. We do experience deep sadness. We do suffer. But it takes on a different character in the coming of the Lord. There is a hope. There is 
a redemption, God will gather us up and we shall all be present with the Lord. There is a moment of goodness that so overcomes the suffering and the death that we grieve for now that it alleviates, that it gives us hope, that it carries us through that suffering that we do not grieve as others grieve. We grieve yet comforted. At the men's retreat last week, I think it was last week, we studied Romans 5 and Paul says, for we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings and our sufferings bring about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. It is that hope that's laid up for us, the goodness of God of being met with God in the air, being present with him forever, with all the saints, that allows us to rejoice in the sufferings that we face. The day of the Lord stands out there for us. There is a moment, and we may have to wait for it. And we have to wait through suffering. We may lose loved ones. We will lose loved ones, and we will suffer. But the day of the Lord is so great that it allows us to count our sufferings as nothing, Paul says. So great is that glory of God. We ought then to set our hopes on it. The king is coming soon. The day of the Lord sets us to be people of faith and fear, of comfort and hope, and of mutual encouragement. Paul ends chapter 4 in Thessalonians. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. David has illustrated, he's walked us through these sermons in Thessalonians. Paul has maybe only been in this church, I think, three weeks of his life. And he writes them two letters, constantly writing letters that he might lift up and elevate and encourage the church to be one of mutual encouragement. He can't be with them. And he wants them to help each other. I love that there's five wise bridegrooms that wait, or five wise virgins that wait for the wedding. They wait in community. We don't wait for the Lord alone. There is this mutual building up of one another in sharing of this Christian life. We help one another wait for the Lord. We help one another stay awake in our waiting. This phrase Paul has in Philippians 1, I thought of this week, Paul says, so whether I'm with you or I'm absent, I pray that I may find you in one mind, in one heart, standing side by side for the gospel of faith. Paul, when he comes, wants to see them in community. He writes later in the letter to Judea and Syntyche who are in conflict and says, help them, help them, brothers and sisters, to be at peace so that there might be one body and one mutual encouragement. David and I have been talking recently about this communion table that we share. And as best as we're able, we share one cup and one bread, one loaf, one body, one faith as Paul teaches us. And we could break up all of our bread and have wafers, and we're trying to symbolize that mysterious spiritual solidarity that we have, that as God is one with the Son and the Father, we are one with God through Jesus. There is something in our existence as Christians that our lives bleed over into one another. And as we take the cup of Jesus' suffering and we look forward to the resurrection we will enjoy in him, our lives are wedded together and knit as one. Think on your week, I wonder if you look back. Can you point to one or two times this week that you lifted up the drooping hands and the weak knees of your brother or sister in Christ? 
prayer, an email, a kind word. Those little encouragements, those mutual prayers, those letters, those texts that remind us that we walk through the faith together in mutual encouragement as we wait for the day of the Lord. And so, friends, let us, as we wait for this day when it comes in the Lord's desire, trim our lamps with fear and faith, with hope and comfort, and with mutual encouragement that we may know him and meet him when he arrives. Amen.